You're listening to AMWA's Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast that is designed to promote diversity of thought through unfiltered and honest conversations about all topics related to diversity and inclusion, highlighting the disparities and inequities in medicine and population health. And most importantly, what can we do about it? Thank you for joining us for another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues, and I am your host, Cheyenne Brown. Today, we have Dr. Agarwal back with us to facilitate another conversation. Dr. Agarwal is our Chief Diversity Officer, and our listeners, of course, are very familiar with her at this point. And so, Dr. Agarwal, thank you for being back and uh, joining us and helping us with another uh, important conversation. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> okay. Well, we have um, a very interesting topic to talk about today that for many of our listeners um, comes up, no doubt, in, in their clinical practices. Um, they hear about this in passing from patients and families, and it has to do with caregiving. And the term is now much more commonly Uh, coming out in the media about issues around caregiving. Uh, And um, it's kind of come out of the doctor's offices, the doors uh, into mainstream. So I am so pleased to uh, introduce our um, panelists today on the podcast, Ms. Megan Gilligan. Um, Megan is an associate professor in the Human Development and Family Studies at the Iowa State University. And she also is a faculty affiliate in the gerontology program at Iowa State University. And, you know, I think um, as we move along in our podcast, um, we've been really focusing on bringing in researchers and collaborators with us as physicians or soon-to-be physicians so that we have an understanding of how each member of these diverse groups can help form our teams and help us as we deliver patient care, but also deliver um, the up-to-date research uh, in this field. So I'm so excited to have Megan um, on the show today. And she's going to share with us a little bit of her work that she's doing um, in the caregiving realm. So Megan, welcome. Great, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. So I was gonna kick off the questions. uh, And um, the first thing for our listeners, Um, Can you just tell us um, really what your work is about and and what right now what you're focusing on and how you got into this area? So I um, have been researching later life family relationships, so relationships between parents and their adult children and then also adult siblings for over 10 years now. And I'm really interested in how those family relationships can impact our health and well-being. And so recently with this project, I'm particularly interested in how these relationships between adult siblings can impact health and well-being during during caregiving. And um, one of the things that kind of resonates for me with what you just said is, Often if we encounter a, a caregiver, particularly at a doctor's office, we may have one person coming in um, and we are interacting with, with 
who we might call, quote unquote, the primary caregiver. Um, but one of the things that my colleagues and I have been really thinking about over the last several years is the kind of the network that exists behind, behind that primary caregiver. And we have started to realize that often there are multiple people involved in this caregiving process. And we're um, starting to use language like care partnerships and care networks to understand how do these multiple people come together to kind of navigate and negotiate care? Um, and how can we optimize that network? Um, how can we um, make sure that they're supportive of each other? And also, how can we understand how this network might create stress and strain? So um, how can we promote the network to benefit our health and well-being? But also, how do we understand how that network might have consequences on our health and well-being as well? So really capturing the broader caregiving network, in this case, particularly um, how adult siblings approach care of an older parent with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. I think this is uh, something that's resonating with us quite a bit, um, you know, from a diversity and equity standpoint and disparities. Um, we've talked many times, Cheyenne and I have talked about this. We brought, um, you know, um, panelists on, on for the podcast about dementia in our underrepresented groups that we see in research um, in our, you know, minoritized groups, if you will. And we see a very high rate of dementia, twice, um, twice as high in African-American, one and a half times as high in uh, Latino Hispanics. And I would say probably with Asian, when our numbers come in, it's going to be hovering around one and a half times more. And caregiving has, is such an integral part for all of our groups, but specifically for minority groups. And um, you know, with regards to, you know, how do you approach these topics with underrepresented groups when you're talking about caregiving? What have you done so far in learning about these groups? And then what is your research uh, looking at right now? Yeah, I think the points you made are particularly important. So this experience of higher rates um, in, in certain populations um, also may be less likely to get a diagnosis um, or to get the, the proper care and support um, in certain populations. Um, the other thing that we are realizing is among uh among certain groups, um, African-American families, as well as Latino families, um, are more likely to experience uh, this caregiving network. So they're more likely to maybe be co-residing with an older parent, um, maybe have multiple family members, again, living together, or certainly having multiple members that are part of this care network. So I think that one of the really important things about this study and this work is as we move forward and we start to think about well, how can we use these findings to develop programming, to develop support, um, making sure that those voices and experiences are represented because those are the populations that are most likely to be to be experiencing these care networks. And so um, we are really trying to capture that experience so that we can better reflect those experiences in the programs that we're, we're hoping to develop. So I will share, um, I'm working currently with a clinical psychologist at Iowa State, and we are starting to develop um, some of these programs and what they might look like. And um, 
We, we also know that certain, certain groups, um, underrepresented groups, are less likely to be reflected in the research. And so in order to accurately develop programs that meet those needs and support those families, we're, we're hoping to, to bring them into the research so that we can better create programs that reflect their experiences. And so that's, that's where we are right now. We're, we're working on developing those programs, but we're also really understanding we need this research to make sure that these programs accurately reflect the needs and experiences of the people that these programs can best serve. I uh, I really resonate with this, as of, of course, as Dr. Agarwal has been saying, because as you're speaking, I'm thinking back to even personal experiences, um, not on a sibling-sibling relationship, but just as, a, you know, an older family member requires care, how, you know, the in the African-American community and in, in my, my family in particular, we just you know, we just know that this is our duty and we're, we're rushing to do what we can to take care of this person. But everyone has not always had the experience of being in the role of taking care of someone in that way. So we're, we're just doing it out of the need, but not necessarily knowing how to take care of yourself while that's going on. And then I've watched, you know, people get burnt out you know, without even realizing how how it's happening. And so, the, you know, thinking about how these people are operating in this space, you know, when you start talking about programming and things to help them, I, I believe that will be very impactful. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I think this is a really important point. And I, one of the things I'm I'm already starting to notice is, you know, those of us who are having this conversation and researchers and even medical professionals, we may know the rates and the risks of this happening, but a lot of times individual families are not anticipating that this is something that's going to happen. And so it's happening often in, um, in, a, in, in a bit of a crisis mode that people aren't making long-term plans to prepare for this. And I think that one of the things we're really interested in is how these multiple members of a care network um, may have the best intentions, but sometimes we're saying things in the moment right. um, and we have really strong opinions. And um, if we better understand kind of what's the consequences of operating in that mode versus if we could if we could create programming to facilitate those conversations, to give families a chance to um, express opinions, but also maybe um, maybe express those ideas in a more constructive manner, you know, then maybe we can attenuate and reduce some of those um, consequences. So um, I, I can appreciate that for a lot of families, this is not something that they have had conversations about or really planned ahead for. And so this project is really intended to capture that experience so that we can do better moving forward. Okay. I think um, before we delve into the project, Megan, I think one thing that I would really like to highlight um, to our listeners is that sometimes it requires the medical professional to say to the family member, this can cause burnout and this can hurt you, okay? Mm -hmm. um, over the years, I've even changed my language when it comes, especially with Alzheimer caregiving. This isn't just going to make you tired. Mm -hmm. This is going to negatively affect your health. It can kill you. Mm -hmm. And when people hear me say that, 
they sit up and they listen. Mm-hmm. That this isn't something, and you know, as Cheyenne mentioned, it's duty. Yes, we have the duty. The trouble is, if you don't understand what you are managing, how are you going to do it in a way that doesn't hurt you? And then we end up seeing the burnout rates extremely high and the negative things that come from burnout to the care, the giver, um, and the person that they're supposed to be providing care to. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, this isn't just in a geriatric office. This is not in a primary care office. This is occurring in cardiology offices. There's, um, you know, doctors are seeing this. This is occurring in GI offices. Mm -hmm. This is occurring in ophthalmology offices. This is occurring everywhere. And at times, um, it just seems, well, that's just what we do. And, And I appreciate that and I respect that. And I think there's a lot of pride in, in, in saying, I provide care. I'm just trying to get the messaging, providing the best possible care for you, your family, and frankly, your siblings, if your siblings are involved. So with mm-hmm. that, I want to segue into, let's talk about your project in particular, because what I found very interesting um, about this project, and, and um, just a disclosure to our uh, listeners, um, I am also... Um, looking at my patients and my family members and um, my network to see if they'd like to participate in this project, especially in our communities that I work in, because it has to do with siblings, sibling caregiving, and, you know, how, what's the positive and negatives and what is the research behind sibling caregiving to a loved one? Because a lot of the family strife tends to come from these situations. Yeah. And I, you know, I, and, um, I can I can see um, Cheyenne thinking yes yes we've seen this, but can you talk about that a little bit about your project with siblings, and what are you hoping to learn? Yeah, so one of the things that my colleagues and I had already started to note before this project is that. Um, in the context of caregiving generally, even outside of Alzheimer's disease and related dementia caregiving, that there were often multiple adult children who were providing care and maybe kind of um, uh, shifting into different roles in that caregiving experience. Um, One of the things that um, I have noticed in my past work and the current project is also, we're using the word caregiver today. I, I mentioned the word primary caregiver. Um, sometimes people will approach me and say, well, I do, you know, I do this, this, this. They list out all of these things, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm really a caregiver. So um, this idea of um, providing a lot of support in all of these different contexts, but not being aware even that that is, you know, that we would, um, your, your doctor might see you as a caregiver, the researcher might see you as a caregiver, but not even really realizing that yourself. So we wanted to capture in this project um, that network, that experience of this, uh, of multiple uh, adult children providing care um, to an older parent with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. So the project is designed to um, interview two adult children within the same family of an older parent with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. And it's it's one of the first studies actually to do that. So previous, uh, previous research and also previous programming has really targeted kind of that one caregiver. And I think that there's some extra pressure to feel that way too, that I, I'm doing this by myself and um, 
So the project is designed to give adult children in, in a family a chance to talk about that. So what is it that everyone is contributing? What are the challenges to, to those contributions? And maybe also what is the benefit? So what is working well? Um, and already um, from families who are participating, you can kind of see that. Um, maybe some families are working in a way that there are strengths that we can, we can benefit from knowing that this is how we figure this out. And other families maybe are articulating particular challenges that we didn't know about before, but now we can see, okay, yes, um, there's challenges. For example, the study is designed to capture um, the experiences of adult children, regardless of geographic proximity. So we're currently recruiting from um, Iowa, uh, Illinois, and Wisconsin. So one adult child has to reside in, in those states, but the other adult child could reside anywhere in the United States. And so that's one of the things we're also starting to get a feel for um, is that sometimes people are providing support once in a while when they come when they come back in or they're providing support emotionally by calling on the phone and so trying to capture the contributions of these multiple um, these multiple network members um, the contributions and also the the challenges or strains that come um, from involving multiple people in the caregiving process okay well, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting because I think uh, getting that full picture will definitely help uh, with understanding how things are running. Um, and as you said, there's, you know, people that are living out of state that are contributing also, you know, or, you know, in, in the my personal experience, you know, feeling like they want to do more <laughs> and not being <laughs> able to, to do as much from where they are or not knowing what it is they can do in those mm -hmm. situations. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about this cross state caregiving, I think this is a really important thing um, that knowing that how dispersed we are, um, you know, if you come from a large family or a larger family, you may have one sibling that is kind of manning the, manning the fort, if you will, um, at home, and then everybody's everywhere else. And, you know, that causes a lot of strife in many cases, um, a lot of resentment, um, that things are falling on me. I may have siblings, but they're not here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm here, and this is um, mm -hmm. too much. Uh, clearly, I mean, I have heard this years and years and years and years. And I, again, seeing what it does to somebody, the caregiver, um, how it wears them down. Um, let's talk a little bit about how are you measuring the stress? Because the stress is real, Okay. Um, it's not in your head. There is a biological mechanism for this stress. It's, it's widely been reported on. And I, I'm bringing this up because as medical doctors, sometimes when we speak in medical terms to patients, that allows us then to talk a little bit more about the psychosocial issues coming in from the medical perspective. Um, and not with all patients, but for many patients, talk to me medical first and then go into the psychosocial um, so I have an idea why you're asking me these questions, um, especially in our, you know, diverse populations where it's like, why do you want to know that information? Right. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about how with your project you're measuring stress? Because I find it fascinating um, how you're measuring the stress. Again, knowing that people are in different places and you're conducting this very virtual, which you'll get into. Yeah. So um 
So let me kind of describe a little bit about the study design, and then um, I can describe the stress, how we're measuring stress and how it fits into there. So um, first of all, let me say that um, research shows us and um, those who are listening and experiencing this will say yes. Um, so this is a really stressed population. This is a really busy population and um, they are juggling multiple things. And so the study is designed to be as low maintenance as possible. So all data collection can happen within participants' own home. Um, and that's regardless of geographic location. So um, surveys can be completed either hard copy or online. And then uh, the two adult siblings who agree to participate in the study um, join in a video discussion using Zoom. So we can use the technology so that folks can stay in their own home and not have to um, come into a lab. Um, but also the stress um, measures can also be self-collected in individuals' homes. So there are two different um, biological uh, measures that we're using. And one is from participants' saliva. So uh, this is something we walk uh, participants through during the video discussion. So they self-collect saliva samples, um, which allow us to measure a number of stress um, as well as immune biomarkers. So uh, as we know, if uh, when we get stressed, it can activate our immune system. So we can tell kind of how that's functioning. Um, we can measure our actual stress hormones to see how elevated they are. Are we constantly at a state of alert, which I think a lot of caregivers may describe that. Um, they may go into the, the office and say, I'm just feeling just really stressed all the time. Well, our stress hormones will show that. So are they at this really elevated state? Um, the other thing that we're interested in with the saliva samples is um, we measure them at three time points during the discussion with the adult sibling to see how that actual conversation might also activate our stress response. So we can actually capture that. Um, and um, you can think about then what are the program implications of that because we are noticing that, yes, when you're in a really tense situation, um, conversation, trying to figure out what are the best plans for that future care, for example, and it's activating your stress response and your immune response. Um, if we could facilitate that so that you're not activating those response systems, that has positive consequences for how your body's operating and functioning. Um, the second way that we're measuring stress is through participants' hair. Um, so they will collect a hair sample um, and then those samples get mailed back to Iowa State. Um, and one of the things that's really kind of interesting about the hair sample is it allows us to understand kind of chronic stress. So your hair actually captures the stress over the last three months of your life. And so you can think about, we can know then what, what did the last three months of, of that caregiver's life look like and how, how did that show up in their stress response over that period of time from a, a pretty small hair sample actually, which I, I'm, I'm actually really excited about because I think that these measures kind of validate what caregivers may be 
expressing. Um, they may be saying, I feel this, I feel stressed. Um, and sometimes a lot of us might say, yep, that's how everyone feels. Um, but we can actually capture it and measure it and document it, um, which I think will really have ultimate um, outcomes of our ability to then address it. Yes, yeah, so we can show that these are the stress levels of caregivers. Um, this is how they're responding to the stress in their sibling relationships. Um, and so once we document that experience, I think that motivates us even more to do something about it um, and to try to reduce that stress, um, ultimately to reduce all the consequences that Dr. A is talking about. So um, we know that stress is correlated with the functioning of a lot of our body, of our sleep process, of our, of our GI, our digestive system, of our respiratory system and our circulatory system. And so um, really targeting our stress levels hopefully will make the health experience better for caregivers overall. I've, that's really interesting that you have um, this these biological markers involved in the study, you know, that it's not just an, a, you know, results from how am I feeling, things that can be, you know, altered by different things. So I, I think that's that's really good to have that um, as an element to to this study. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I should say, the survey, so participants will notice we do ask um, standard self-report right. measures, but I think also what is really nice about that is then we can kind of compare those things. Right. And we may notice, for example, there are certain groups who maybe report self-report really low, but their bodies are experiencing right. stress on mm -hmm. a very high level. So we can also kind of validate how, how those self-report measures work with different groups of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, this is such a fascinating topic because, and if, again, for our listeners to think back right in the beginning, what we mentioned and what Megan mentioned, we don't have representation in these types of studies from um, diverse populations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you hear about the effect of stress on the body, the effect of stress on the heart, which has really been investigated for years and years and years, you know, there's always this question that I get when I'm in the field and when I'm with our, my community members or my people saying to me, but is that really the same for my ethnic group? Is that really, is it playing out the same way for our populations? And with that comes the questions of, we've been through so much, maybe we've learned how to handle this better or for worse, Right. And I think these are really good questions from a, you know, a DEI perspective, understanding that people may not say this in the clinic, in the hospital setting, in the doctor's office, but many people think it. And I think this is why this kind of a study is so important to really undertake and really engage as many diverse populations as you can, because the biological markers here that you're looking at you have an impact and you have really a, a great opportunity to say no. You know, although you're reporting no stress, look at what the stress levels were versus I was reporting a lot of stress and the stress levels are not showing this. Mm -hmm. um, so kudos to you for, you know, trying to link the two. My question though, Megan, is, and it comes down to a topic that is very hot right now, um, disclosure of results. Mm -hmm. And this is a topic that is 
important for everybody, but I can tell you um, from a disparities and a diversity perspective, how, how are you disclosing results, number one? Um, and, you know, what are some of the things you had to think about as you disclose these results? Like, here is what you said in a self-survey. Here's what the biological was reporting. So if you can share a little bit on your process there. Yeah, so there, there's kind of multiple answers to that particular question. One thing I, I want to say, because it's come up, is, um, you know, and concerns about uh, giving biological data and what happens with that biological data once um, once a participant provides it. So one, th- one question that I have been getting quite a bit recently, and certainly you might see studies um, that are asking information about DNA, and I have, um, I have gotten that. Um, this study is not extracting or measuring DNA. So that's something I, I um, often have to clarify um, because uh, the giving biological data is something that is kind of new in trying to figure out what is it that you're going to do with that. So for us, we are interested, and in, I mentioned in the stress and the and the immune biomarkers. We're not um, we're not using uh, DNA information, but all of the information that participants give to us and provide for us as part of the study is is their data. Um, so from the survey data to the video discussion to the biological data. So um, that information none of it uh, would be released um, with identifiable information. So when we're reporting results and findings, we're reporting them de-identified and we're getting a sense of, of all the participants in the study, what does that look like in the aggregate? So what does that look like as a total? But if participants, um, after they participate, would want to know um, or would want to see their data again, um, they are more than welcome to ask me. It is a little hard for the stress and immune biomarkers that we're talking about. One of the things I'm thinking about is in other work, for example, if I'm measuring certain things, uh, biological things about someone, it has kind of a standard range. Um, And I can say this is where a participant falls. Uh, Your heart rate Mm -hmm. is, is in this number compared to the standard range. For all the things you just discussed, our stress and immune biomarker data, we just don't know as much about it to know that this is a standard range for this for this person. Um, and so it is a little hard to interpret our individual numbers um, for that. Also, we know that some people's responses are different than others. So um, some people, a little bit of stress makes those numbers go up quite a bit. Um, and for others, uh, even if they're exposed to extreme stress, their numbers are elevating. So we're kind of at a stage right now where we're, we're getting to know more about that. And we're hoping to know more about that on diverse populations. But um, definitely our stress and immune biomarkers are not necessarily interpretable in those quote unquote standard ranges that we might be used to, for example, when we get blood work at the doctor's office and we can kind of interpret them um, within those numbers. But participants should know that um, this study has uh, institutional review board approval at Iowa State. Um, So it is following those ethical guidelines and um, their information would be confidential um, and de-identified and we would never share their, their results publicly. And I know that that is something people 
want to make sure of um, if they are agreeing to share um, any type of, of personal information, but also um, certainly their biological data and information. But people, you know, um, on the flip side also want to know, okay, you've done this. Now tell me what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, Diane, we can appreciate this as physicians. You know, we're very, you know, I often say this, we're a very action-oriented group. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we can talk about it, talk about it, but the, it comes down to the now what, you know, the, uh, the famous hashtag now what, because it does come up. It, it, it's, it's coming up and it comes up sometimes sooner than later. So in this situation, when we're talking about caregiving practices and knowing that it's a very stressful situation to begin with and having siblings on top of it, which can add stress, um, what do you... What do you say to participants or guide them as to methods to reduce the stress? Um, and, and where are you taking that information from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the things um, that we've already kind of been noting a lot of times um, participants are coming to us from referrals um, from community organizations that they're already connected with. Um, and so one of the things that we're already having is sometimes they are disclosing during the study, I, I, am, I am really stressed out. I've kind of reached my point. And so one of the first things that we would do um, with participants or have been doing with participants is making sure that they already are aware of available resources. So often they're connected with someone in the community, but sometimes not. So kind of what are available resources? Um, and then we have already started to work with community partners that we've been partnering with to do um, kind of informational, like what what are uh, what are best practices right now? What are ways that you might be able to deal with stress through physical exercise, through mindfulness? So starting to kind of do that on in the moment. So if we're out talking about the study, also talking to participants about what are techniques um, and programming and resources that are already available, and trying to get awareness out about that because I think related to our earlier conversation, I think a lot of folks just feel like, well, this is just how things are. And this is just a normal experience for caregivers. And they're, they're disclosing that often as they participate in the study. So uh, immediately trying to say, you know, hey, let's let's figure out what we can do in this moment to try to get the resources you need and maybe um, things, you know, we know one person, we know one person. And so maybe for some people that's lifestyle changes in terms of exercise or um, getting getting outside more. Maybe, you know, maybe that's something that works for them. Maybe for someone else, it's um, it would re really be great for me to get connected with a support group because I really need to talk to other people. I'm feeling very isolated. So knowing what local resources are available is, is one of the things that we've been doing and having a lot of conversations with. Long-term, our goal is, to develop more of those resources and particularly um, one area where there I think resources are really lacking is uh, not focusing just on the individual and uh, what are lifestyle changes that an individual can do to reduce their stress but how do we develop programming for families um, so that we can actually reduce the stress of those family relationships um, so that's the long-term goal but certainly we are we are trying to maximize available resources for individuals right now that are available. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely important, you know, having an idea of what's within your reach, you know, what you can do. A lot of people really don't know, and they're just going along, you know, dealing with the stress or, you know, deciding, you know, having that preconceived notion like this is just how it is, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Of course I'm going to be stressed out, but not knowing, you know, where they can turn to. So that's that's really important. Yeah, I'm wondering, oh. Megan, I was wondering, just thinking out loud that, you know, if you were to, in, if you were to talk about physical exercise and, you know, the, the mindfulness, the yoga, the things that we talk about right now in mm -hmm. the offices with our people, um, you know, do you have any evidence in the research to suggest that if you were to measure these biological, the hair and saliva, and then you do this mindfulness or you do a diet, uh, not so much diet, but a physical activity intervention, do those levels come down? I mean, is there research out there to show that, that, and especially even in the hair, that what the hair is holding, that those, those changes occur? Is there anything like that? Yeah, I think that that's an area where we're seeing more research. And so the research that's coming out of that is certainly showing that there are benefits. Um, so, um, uh, for example, I, I work with a kinesiologist here at Iowa State, um, and she um, she works with saliva and blood, actually blood samples, but showing the benefits, for example, of physical exercise and reducing those. Um, those. And uh, certainly I've, I've worked with some other colleagues um, Mindfulness or mindfulness-like techniques can um, can show uh, results. I'm not so sure, and I think it would be interesting in, in kind of where we're going is um, often we're measuring that saliva and I mentioned blood to kind of see in the moment, can we get those numbers to come down? Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I think is really beneficial about the hair is what are the long-term effects? So if we could start to see not just in the moment, can we get those responses to go down, but do we notice that we can get those responses to go down over several months? Um, and ultimately that's what we wanna see because we wanna see that our bodies are kind of sustaining a level where we're not constantly having these stress responses. Right. So I think that's where we wanna go is to use these more long-term biomarkers, which is, is a really great opportunity with hair. Yeah. So, I think the hair, Diane, was amazing to me when I heard about yeah. hair. You know, we always <laughs> think about people losing hair, right? We hear it all the time. Right. We're stressed, right? Yeah. I'm losing my hair. Mm -hmm. um, and it, there was a television commercial about um, a, a young woman who went to medical school, and she talks about how she was losing her hair, um, and presumably not due to another medical condition per se, but stress. Mm -hmm. But the fact that whatever hair you ha may have remaining is holding the stress mm -hmm. level is also very interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, right. To, yeah. to think about that. And I think that is something that um, many people didn't know or don't know that this could be an, a, a good way to measure things. Right. Um, I think Cheyenne, one of the things for our listeners, we, we want to make sure that you, you know, if you yourself are a caregiver um, and participating, I mean, you know, taking care of a loved one with a sibling um, and or if you think something like this is important for your patients to get involved with, to um, have them 
learn more about what stress does and doesn't do and how to talk through it with a, with a caregiving experience, um, you know, this may be a study that you may want to think about. So, Megan, what's the best way to reach you? Um, yeah, so the best way um, to reach me is probably just to send me an email. And so my email address is mgilliga, M-G-I-L-L-I-G-A, at iastate.edu. So if folks send me an email about the study, even just letting me know they heard about it, interested, um, I I can then set up if it's easier for us to talk on the phone, um, we can do that. Or I often will just exchange emails to kind of figure out. One thing I wanted to note too is as we're talking about how busy and stressed this population is, I often will have participants say, I really want to do this, but it's going to take me a little while to coordinate with my siblings. So we have some um, participants who finish the study in a week and we have some participants who it takes several weeks. Um, And so we are we are completely understanding that this is a population that has a lot going on in their lives. So we can coordinate and work around that. Um, so I'm more than happy if folks send me an email, we talk on the phone, and we can figure out what's the best way for their family to participate in the study. Yeah, that sounds good. I think uh, I'm sure we will have uh, a few people reach out to you from this uh, platform. We'll definitely include your email in the description of the podcast when we post it. And um, I know that from, you know, firsthand experience that this is definitely a very important topic. And there are so many people out there that are unknowingly uh, and knowingly dealing with this and would love to know more about how this is affecting them and the resources that they have, you know, at their disposal. You know, I'm thinking, Cheyenne, even with physicians, okay? Yeah. And although we're talking about our patients, well, guess what? We are somebody's patient also. <laughs> um, and I often, you know, remind my colleagues that, hello, uh, think about yourself and your own families and what is happening, and especially when it comes to, um, you know, a disease such as Alzheimer's, which is becoming, again, much more widely discussed talked about simply because our numbers are so high. Um, It's a disease that's affecting all of our populations at different rates, differentially, but affecting us. And it's now becoming uh, much more um, the siblings. If you have them, uh, you know, how is everybody getting involved? So I'm going to urge my female physicians, particularly because we do know in Alzheimer's, it's the women that are still the primary caregivers. Mm Um, either as the daughter or the daughter-in-law mm-hmm. um, providing care, coming to visits with people, being the ones that the physicians talk to. Um, and although the men have, I can say, stepped up, um, but it's still predominantly a woman's issue. Um, and, you know, and frankly, Alzheimer's is a woman's issue. From Women are affected more than men. So you can see this theme coming in here. But as women physicians, um, I'm urging you to think about your own families. And if this is something that um, you think would be helpful for your own uh, care, because we have to make sure our physician workforce is in the best possible physical and mental um, shape that they can be. And these things come up that at times, as we've noted, 
very draining, and if not if not going unchecked, can really really hurt you um, with your your health, your physical health, and your mental health. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you so much, Megan, for sharing with us today your work. It's very exciting. Um, it's so needed. It is so needed, um, and I think for the listeners on this podcast. Just sit and reflect a little bit about where you are in this with this type of situation and think about what else is out there in addition to your patients, you know, to promote well-being um, for the caregiver, um, I think is, is really critical. So with that, Cheyenne, I'm going to turn it back to you. I think you have done quite a good job of wrapping that up. Um, thank you so much, Megan, for, for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really resonated with me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners feel the same way and I'm looking forward to hearing more as your study continues and you know you develop other avenues of research it would be really great to continue this conversation so thank you again (laughs) all right thank you all right thank you Diversity Dialogues is a product of the Jedi Council from the American Medical Women's Association. Thank you for listening.